Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic, the show that asks the tough questions and explores different alternatives to today's pressing issues, theories, or enigmas. A podcast devoted to the exploration of all things mystical, philosophical, scientific, political, conspiratorial, and cosmic. Join us in an exploration of the Mystic Skeptic Mindspace. Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic. In this week's show, we have the Arian Jesus Christian Theologians and the Bible in Nazi Germany, Dr. Susanna Heschel the Eli Black Professor of Jewish Studies at Dartmouth College. Her scholarship focuses on Jewish-Christian relations in Germany during the 19th and 20th centuries, the history of biblical scholarship, and the history of anti-Semitism. But I'm so glad that there's such a strong interest in this topic that so many of you have come this evening. Uh, It's not a, as you know, it's not a heartwarming topic. What I'm going to be speaking about today is the effort uh, by a group of Protestant theologians, a substantial group, I have to say, to not only de-Judaize Christianity, but to argue that Jesus came to destroy Judaism. He was killed by the Jews, and now Hitler was picking up his project and carrying it to its conclusion. So I'm going to talk about, uh, in the beginning, about how I came to this project, describe to you a little bit about their work, what they did, how they argued this claim, But I can't leave you with that. I want to say something a little bit at the end uh, about post-war years and what's been accomplished since World War II, uh, because I don't think it's good to leave leave you on this very unpleasant um, historical era. So let me begin by first of all telling you how I came to the project. I was writing a book as a graduate student on Abraham Geiger, who was a Jewish theologian in the 19th century in Germany. He's very well known as being one of the founders of Reform Judaism. But he was also an extraordinary, brilliant historian, truly an extraordinary scholar, an incredibly learned man. He was one of the first Jews to be able to attend a German university. He went to the University of Bonn in the 1830s. He had a small circle of friends. And there he began to study Arabic, which is very close to Hebrew, which he knew very well. And then he wrote a book on the Quran. And he showed the parallels between rabbinic texts and the Quran, parallels between Judaism and Islam in ritual, in belief, and in scripture. This book was published in 1833, and it was hailed all over Europe. In fact, to this day, it's considered a landmark. It's the book that started Islamic studies in Europe. He went on to have a career as a rabbi. As you know, he couldn't become a professor in Germany at the time. Jews couldn't become professors unless they got baptized. So he was a rabbi, but he continued his scholarship. Later in his career, he started writing about the New Testament, And parallels, similar, parallels between what Jesus taught and what rabbis taught. He was the first to make a very forceful claim that Jesus himself was a Pharisee. He's called a rabbi in the Gospels. As you know, it's probably the earliest reference we have to a rabbi, the word. But Pharisees were also rabbis, people who interpreted scripture. And Geiger pointed out the parallels. Now, what's striking to me is the difference in the reception when he wrote about the Quran being very similar to Judaism. Everybody thought it was great. When he said that Jesus' teachings were were Jewish, were similar to those of, let's say, Hillel, another rabbi of the first century, people got upset. Christians got upset. And I just give you one uh, one phrase, one response from Franz Delich from Leipzig, who was um, considered philo-Semitic. He liked Jews. That was his reputation. But he said, calling Jesus a Pharisee is, to my mind, ten times more horrific than the crucifixion. Now, of course, you know everybody, if you open any textbook of New Testament, you'll see Jesus was a Pharisee, no problem. But this is how it was understood in the 19th century, in the last decades of the 19th century. He didn't say that. And in fact, that kind of closeness between Jesus and Judaism was something that was, in a way, inescapable. If you wanted to look at the historical figure of Jesus, who was he? He was a Jew. Where did he live? Palestine, amongst Jews. Did he go to church? (laughs) He went to the synagogue, and he preached. He went to the temple in Jerusalem. He was Jewish. He practiced Judaism. This made people like Franz Dalich and others uncomfortable. They couldn't figure out how to make a difference, establish a distinction. What's different about Jesus? 
some of them began to turn to racial theory. They said, okay, maybe Jesus's teachings were similar to those of the Jews, but racially he was different. Racially he was actually an Aryan. Now, how do you make an argument like that? <laughs> an Aryan. First of all, what's an Aryan? Who, is a, who are Aryans? They were a little um, vague. You know, some of them, they said, well, they're from Iran. Some said they're from India. Whatever they are, they are the not-Jew. What's not Jewish? And they're German. In fact, there was a popular novel, a bestseller in Germany, that said that Jesus was actually born in Schleswig-Holstein. <laughs> the odd thing is that people took these arguments seriously. For instance, even Ernst Renan, everybody knows his Life of Jesus, published in 1863, and some of his other writings, he says, yeah, Jesus started out as a Jew, but he became a Christian and even an Aryan. How do you become? I don't know, but yeah. So the arguments were out there, so to speak. They were repeated by scholars and repeated by popularizers and novelists. How did they make the argument? They said, well, you know, when the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom in the 8th century BCE, the Bible tells us, they laid the population waste. They took everybody away. So who, who moved back into that region? They said, Aryans. Must be Aryans. Not that they had evidence for this, but this was the... Um, so Jesus, they said, was actually born not in the Bethlehem that's near Jerusalem, but rather in the other Bethlehem that's near Nazareth, in the north, in the Galilee. Galilee was understood to be not Jewish. The Galileans had a reputation, by the way. They had a reputation of being not too bright, not too learned, not too religious, not too, not too observant Jewishly. They didn't, know, they didn't know much. They were simple farmers far away from Jerusalem where the learned rabbis were, the Pharisees. No, they were up in the Galilee. So they didn't know very much, and as such, they were susceptible also to apocalyptic fantasies or even to the teachings of someone who claimed to be a Messiah or people said he was a Messiah. So they responded to Jesus. And then these racist scholars said, well, they responded to Jesus also because they felt an affinity for him. They were Arian. So he was Aryan. He must be Aryan if they liked his work. Whereas when he went to Jerusalem, he was put to death. That's where the Jews were, and they killed him. That's a basic general outline of the story. But now let me be more specific about the era. These arguments were already floating around from the late 19th century in Germany into the 1920s and, of course, 1930s. But they didn't come in response to Hitler. Hitler came to power in 1933, but these ideas were already in circulation, and I think that's important. Because what strikes me is that at certain moments, it becomes clear that it wasn't top-down that Hitler imposed either laws or ideas, but they came from the bottom up. There's a historian, Wolf Gruner, for example, who's pointed that out, that sometimes civilians in a municipality would go to the mayor or the town council and say, we don't want the Jews in our park or in our swimming pool. You know? From bottom up, not always from top down. So the theologians. Now I'll tell you what happened. I was writing that book on Geiger, and I was in Berlin uh, as a student, and I had an appointment. Something incredible happened. I had an appointment with a professor. And what was incredible? He was late. This doesn't happen in Germany. People are never late. <laughs> but I was very fortunate that he was late because I was at his institute, the Institute for the Study of Antisemitism, and so I used the time to browse through the library shelves. And as I did that, I came across some books published during World War II by theologians, and I thought, well, what were they saying? During the war, you know, there's a paper shortage. What were they saying? What were they writing? And I started reading through, and it was sheer antisemitic propaganda. It's horrible. Who published it? I noticed it was published by something that called itself the Institute for the Study and Eradication of Jewish Influence on German Religious Life. So I started asking some historians. You know, there's a big literature on the German churches during the Third Reich. I looked first for references to this institute. Nothing. I found one little footnote somewhere. 
I asked some colleagues, senior scholars in the field, what about this institute? Oh, yes, they said, don't write about it. There's no information about it. All the documents are lost. But I started looking around at some archives here and there in Berlin. I found material, and I decided I would go to the place where this institute had been located, its headquarters, which was in the town of Eisenach, which is in Thuringia, which is part of the former East Germany. It's right in the geographic center of Germany. So I went to this town in Eisenach, and it was, for me, I have to tell you, it was very spooky. There was something about the town. It, was, it hadn't changed much, you know, and I saw some of the places where these people, these theologians, the Nazis had met, and it was still there. I went to the archives, the church archives, and the archivist was amazed to meet me. I was the first American, the first Jew, and I had the first laptop he had ever seen. <laughs> he was suspicious. He had himself studied with these theologians after the war and was defensive. And he also said, we don't have any documents. He showed me a couple of pieces of paper, but that's it, he said. But I, I didn't believe him, so I went back a year later. It's not so easy to arrange, you know, to get a grant and go to Germany and go to Eisenach and so on. And I went back, and I went back year after year, and each time he would give me 10 pieces of paper, let's say. We don't have anything more, he would say. And then finally, finally, after many, many trips, yes, he said, we have everything. And he showed me. And indeed, they had the documents that I needed, I traveled also to other archives. In fact, everywhere I went, I found documents in small towns in the north, here and there. The only place where I had trouble, and I want you to know this, is at the University of Vienna archives. Even though I wrote to them ahead of time and told them I was coming and told them exactly what I wanted to see from members of the faculty there, I got there and they said, no, not available. Yeah. So... What did I discover? This institute was founded in May of 1939 with big celebrations. It was founded because these theologians wanted to win some, what shall I say, some love from Hitler. In 1933-34, Hitler was a little concerned about making sure that he had the churches in his pocket and that they wouldn't pose any kind of... Uh, resistance, let's say, but that he found right away that he had nothing to worry about because they were drooling over him. And in fact, he withdrew his interest. By 1935-36, there were new rulings that came down. For example, the Nazi party said, you can't use a swastika unless it's for the Nazi party itself, but other institutions can't. What did this mean? Well, I found letters sent in from pastors around Germany begging to be allowed to retain the swastika because they had it on the altar next to the cross, or they had it on the masthead of the church newspaper. And they would send in photographs to show this, but nope, I'd take it down. And then came a ruling from Himmler. Theologians could not become members of the SS. You know it's the SS. They couldn't join the SS because they were suspected of having dual loyalties. Imagine, dual loyalties, maybe to the church, maybe to God. Yeah. They couldn't join, and again, they were protests begging to be allowed to join the SS. So the compromise was they could become supporting members of the SS, which meant they paid a monthly token fee, and they received a, a little um, decorative pin to wear in the lapel to show that they were supporting members of the SS. And you see photographs of these theologians wearing the pins with great pride. Some, of course, joined the SA, the brown shirts. That was the case, as a matter of fact, with Gerhard von Rad, uh, who was not a, a raving Nazi, but had some sympathy, at least in 1934. And his membership is what convinced the people at the University of Jena to hire him as a professor because they thought, he must be a Nazi. He's in the SA. So somehow he either fooled them or he really was. It's not clear. But the theologians wanted more from Hitler, and they didn't know what to do, and they held a series of meetings, 1936, 37, 38, and they decided what could they offer. 
What they could offer Hitler was anti-Semitic propaganda. They said it very clearly. They know something about the Jews, about Judaism. They've studied it as professors of theology, especially scholars of New Testament or Old Testament. And so they decided to establish an institute. It would provide anti-Semitic propaganda. It would demonstrate to Hitler their loyalty. They also said that, yes, we are, Germany is fighting against the Jews militarily. We are also fighting spiritually, and we are in charge of the spiritual battlefield against the Jews. Now, the man whose career is central to this story is a man by the name of Walter Grundmann. He is not known in this country. His work is in German and hasn't been translated and shouldn't be. But I'll just tell you that if, if we were now together in Germany, if you were a German audience, you would know his name. Because theologians in Germany, pastors, all read his commentaries on the Gospels. They were required reading until the 1990s for anybody seeking ordination as a German Protestant pastor. His commentaries are big, thick commentaries, and they were the standard commentary uh, on the Gospels that everybody used. Not everybody knew, of course, his background. So what happened? Walter Grünmann studied at the University of Tübingen, which is one of the great universities in Germany. He studied with two very important New Testament scholars. One is Adolf Schlatter. Does anybody know that name? Yes. Uh -huh. He's being revived, Schlatter, today in the United States, which worries me. Uh, and I'll just m mention that you should read the article by James McNutt that appeared last year in the Harvard Theological Review about Schlatter. Adolf Schlatter was not a great scholar. He was a kind of a pietistic but very beloved teacher who, who in became more and more anti-Semitic and supportive of Nazi anti-Semitism in the 1930s. The other teacher at the time who was a, really a great scholar was Gerhard Kittel. Gerhard Kittel is a bizarre story. He worked with Jewish scholars and Christian scholars on rabbinics. He produced a standard edition of the critical, critical edition of the Mishnah. Can you imagine of the Tosefta? He was a really learned scholar of Judaism. And yet, immediately in 33, he wrote an article, a pamphlet, where he asked, what should we do with the Jews? We could, and he had three possibilities, expel them, grant them guest status, or murder them. As if that's... That's Gerhard Kittel. He rose, by the way, to the very top of the Nazi regime. He was very close to Goebbels, the minister of propaganda, uh, and was given all great honors and brought along one of his favorite students, a man named Karl Georg Kuhn, uh, a man who was really um, has a, also a very terribly ugly history, but a flourishing career after the war. Kittel was arrested. He was uh, he had trouble after the war, which is good. But Karl Georg Kuhn, at the end of the war, presented himself, after doing years and years of anti-Semitic propaganda, presented himself as a scholar of Judaism and said, look, after World War II, don't we want scholars of Judaism at our universities? He was given a professorship, great honors, a feshrift, all the things that a professor would want. So these are the people that Walter Grunman studied with. He joined the Nazi party in 1930. That, by the way, was his big mistake because it meant that after the war, Grunman lost his professorship, which, by the way, was foolish on the part of the Allies. You know, 1930, one didn't know really what Hitler was going to do. Those who joined in 1937, for example, yeah, they really knew. And that strikes me as worse, but all right. He was a man, Walter Grunman, who wanted to be important always, and we see that throughout his life. And he wanted to bring about major transformations. He wanted to transform the church. He wanted to transform theology, the university, theological education, and, of course, his own life. He wanted to be very important. There's a clear self-aggrandizement in the goals that he set for himself. He wanted power. And at the same time, he always felt that he never got as much as he deserved. He always felt he was somehow being shoved to the side. That was the side of his abjection in his own mind. And that's a very dangerous combination, I think, the self-aggrandizement combined with the abjection psychologically. I have to just tell you, all of you, I live in Boston, and all of this is on my mind, and I don't own a television. I'm opposed to television. Uh, but I, to this afternoon, 
I was in the hotel watching CNN. Uh, and, of course, it's terribly upsetting what's been happening. But sometimes I hear things about uh, these two brothers, and I think um, about the material I looked at uh, in the Nazi period. You know, this notion that they're going to defend the church, these theologians said, by killing people, you know, and they wanted supposedly to defend Islam, uh, dropping bombs and killing people. All right, I'm sorry, I just had to mention that because it's so much on my mind. Walter Grinman went on to become a professor at the University of Vienna in 1936, even though he did not have the academic credentials for it. He transformed, together with his colleagues there, he transformed the curriculum. Hebrew was no longer required. Yes, you had to take Old Testament because they were Old Testament professors. And you know, they wanted to get rid of the Old Testament. How can you have a Jewish book in the Christian Bible, they said. But you know what the response was from others? And by the way, this Hans von Soden was one of them from Marburg, famous professor. They said, you don't have to take the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew scriptures out of the Christian Bible. It's not really a Jewish book. It's an anti-Semitic book because the prophets are always denouncing Israel. So that was their defense of the Hebrew Bible. That's what they were thinking. Students at the University of Jena who wrote uh, theses were criticized if they cited, of course, it was forbidden to cite a Jewish author. And if they did, they had to do it over. Somebody made the mistake of citing Martin Buber in a thesis. They had to incorporate racial theory. Central books had to be read for a degree in theology, like Mein Kampf. You had to read that. Grinman gave the opening address, uh, the inaugural lecture of this institute, when its opening was celebrated in May of 1939, where he said that what we are doing today is completing the Reformation. Martin Luther got rid of the Catholic Church. He was happy about that. But now it's time to get rid of all the Jewishness that is accrued within Christianity. And immediately the Institute set to work. It had a huge number of, of professors as members, by the way, around 80 professors and instructors of theology, which is an extraordinary number. Uh, and they were divided into working groups. The first project was to produce their own version of the New Testament, purged of all Jewish references. So I just think about it for a minute. Where would you start? If what's the opening of the, of the New Testament? The first chapter is Matthew. What's in Matthew, the first chapter? The genealogy. Jesus is descended from figures from Jews, from figures in the Hebrew Bible. So, of course, that had to go. They got rid of that. What else? Jesus went to the synagogue, out. The temple in Jerusalem, out. Passover, forget it. That's how they dealt with the, yeah? But let me ask you something. What comes after the Gospels? What's the next? Well, we have Acts and then Paul. Now, Jesus comes from Galilee. He's an Arian. Fine. What about Paul? <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> Paul tells us, right? Either he was a Pharisee, zealous unto the law. It's very clear. He's open about it. He's clearly Jewish. And you can't redefine him as an Arian from Galilee. At the same time, you can't just throw out Paul, certainly not as a Lutheran. Martin Luther, you know what Martin Luther, how he felt about Paul, and Luther is considered the greatest exegete of Paul. However, one might disagree with him, but nonetheless, a Lutheran getting rid of Paul. So what do you do? What they did was to take little excerpts from the Pauline epistles, but leave out, and of course, any autobiographical statements by Paul, and they didn't call it Paul. They just had teachings, teachings from these epistles, and then, since Paul's epistles really are so foundational for Christian theology, it's hard. they needed a substitute. What's the substitute? John. Because John's gospel says some not nice things about Jews, as we know. So for them, that was great. I just want to give you one sense about Paul and how they felt. You know, in 1944, in the summer... Germany was collapsing. The bombings were terrible. People were suffering. So many had died. They didn't have homes. It was really a terrible situation 
in Germany in the summer of 44. One of the members of this institute, a pastor by the name of Hugo Pisch, got the bright idea that it was time for the institute to revive its efforts and now fully eliminate all of those excerpts from Paul that had been included in the New Testament that they published. A New Testament, by the way, that was published in hundreds of thousands of copies and sold throughout the Reich for use in churches. They even had a little miniature edition that they sent to soldiers in the Wehrmacht so that you know, they could keep it more easily in their pockets. But Hugo Pisch said, we really have to, we have to get rid of Paul altogether, eliminate, eradicate Paul. He circulated this letter to various bishops and, and theologians, and the best answer came from the Bishop of Mecklenburg, Walter Schulz, who wrote back and said, Pish, this is not the time. The bombs, the destruction, this is not the time. Are you, you know? But then he said, if you make this argument about Paul and the need to eliminate Paul at this point, you will be suggesting that we Christians and this is a direct quote, we Christians have been duped for 2,000 years by some stinking Jew. I just want you to understand the language that they're using. As Lutherans, about Paul, in 44. The language that they used spoke about Jews as satanic, satanic rot that had to be eliminated. They said that course, a German couldn't possibly worship a Jewish God. Not to worry, he wasn't. The propaganda continued. Jews are the Antichrist. They're fighting against Germany. Germany is fighting a defensive war against the Jews of Europe. The Jews have corrupted Germany, corrupted the society internally, externally. This is a corruption that the Jews carry everywhere. These are all direct quotes. They corrupt values. They destroy awe before the mysteries of life. They undermine religiosity. It's interesting, by the way, when you read this, the Jews are very powerful, and these Aryans, who are supposedly the great and mighty Germans, Nazis, they're vulnerable. And that's an interesting combination. What happens then? They next published a hymnal purged of all Jewish references. What would be Jewish in a hymnal? Hebrew words. What's a Hebrew word in the hymnal? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Out. The third stanza, you know the hymn, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? Yeah. Does anybody remember the third stanza? Herz of Aot, Lord of Hosts. Out. The problem was amen, because amen is a Hebrew word. But people who go to church, it's like Jews who go there, say amen automatically. It's just so automatic. And so they had a hard time. And they finally gave up trying to get people to stop saying amen and to say something in German instead. You know. So the hymnal was published and distributed. They published a catechism where they said that Jesus was an Aryan who came for the salvation of all Aryans, et cetera, et cetera. They had conferences of learned, learned theologians. They brought in scholars from Scandinavia. They established a branch of the Institute in Romania. They also had popular lectures. They published a great deal. They had no worries about money. The churches, the Protestant churches, regional churches, supplied them with enough money, enough paper, no problems, and everyone cooperated. The German Foreign Office gave visas to the scholars from Scandinavia who wanted to come to institute-sponsored conferences. And by the way, I know everybody's going to ask, everybody always wants to know first about the Confessing Church, and I'll leave that for the question period, but everybody wants to know about these pagans. People like to say that Nazism was a revival of paganism. If you think of Paganism metaphorically, of course. You murder somebody, you think, how pagan. On the other hand, those who promoted the idea, like Alfred Rosenberg, the great Nazi theorist, they promoted the idea that Christianity was Jewish and had no place. We have to have instead our old pagan Teutonic rituals and myths. There was no real clash. Hardly any Germans during the Third Reich gave up being members of the church. And that's measured easily because people give tax dollars to the church, either Protestant or Catholic. Very few people withdrew. One, two percent, that's all. Even those Nazi 
members of the SS who died and had a pagan Nazi SS funeral, the family would often then have a Christian burial. So people weren't taken in too much by this. But even Alfred Rosenberg, in the spring of 1944, when he decided to have a conference, by the way, an international conference of anti-Semites, included theologians. He planned the conference to be held in Krakow in the summer of 1944, and he invited members of the Institute as a part of the small group of about 20, 25 people that he invited to you know, have a con- an international convention. That conference, he planned every detail, the meals, the hotels, the topics of the lectures. He even arranged for a brothel for the entertainment of these people. In the last minute, it didn't take place. But I'm pointing out to you simply that even someone like Rosenberg, who published the famous myth of the 20th century, even Rosenberg, who was supposedly anti-Christian, nonetheless maintained a relationship with these theologians and included them. Okay, let me move on to the post-war era. What happens to these theologians after they've been talking like this, after they've been producing all this anti-Semitic propaganda? And by the way, if you want to know how was it received, it's hard to measure, but I will tell you that I found postcards sent from soldiers in the Wehrmacht thanking the Institute for its work, saying things like, I'm a soldier, I'm in the Wehrmacht, I'm on the Eastern Front, and your work means so much to me. Put it together. What do you think they're talking about at their work? Why would an institute of anti-Semitic propaganda be so important to them? All right, in 1945 came this effort of denazification. We all know how difficult, how complicated, and how ultimately didn't work very well. If they wanted to get rid of all members of the Nazi party, the Allies would have had to get rid of all of Germany. The institutions would have fallen apart, the judicial system, the judges, the lawyers, the doctors. To get rid of all the Nazis, there would be nobody left. Within the church, the theologians, what did they do? The first thing they did was to get letters. You had to get letters testifying that you weren't a Nazi. There's a lot of naivete at the time. Some of you came in and said, for instance, I have a letter from my pastor showing that I always went to church every Sunday. And the allies would say, look, someone who goes to church every Sunday couldn't possibly be a Nazi. Stamp, you're free. These theologians got letters from their friends. They also had been Nazis, but they didn't admit it. But they said, oh, I knew him, and he certainly was an anti-Nazi. He was defending the church. Or they said, he was naive. He's a theologian. What do you think? He wasn't involved in politics. They took these letters to the political authorities, the state authorities, and the state authorities said, oh, a theologian, what could he know? And gave him the stamp. Once they have the stamp from the state authorities, they went to the church authorities. And the church authorities said, well, if the state gives you denazification, how can we go against it? So they also stamped it. Grunman himself lost his professorship because he had joined the Nazi party in 1930. Instead, he became the rector of a seminary. It's not bad. Hmm? He was the rector of a seminary in East Germany, and he had quite a career there. By the way, some of the documents say that Grunman had waged a manly struggle against the Nazi regime, which I thought was interesting, a manly struggle. His punishment from the church was to serve for two years as a pastor in a village. After that, he became the rector and professor of New Testament. He had a glorious career. He had his work published constantly. He wrote he was very prolific. The gospel commentaries were widely read, purchased, very important. And in 1956, he wanted to be more important. He approached the East German secret police, the Stasi, and volunteered to be a spy for the Stasi and report what was going on in the churches, just to let them know in case there was anybody not cooperating with the East German communist regime. The Stasi handlers were not very impressed by him, but they, they accepted him. They knew he had been a Nazi, and they knew that they could control him because there was always the threat that they would expose him as a Nazi, which would have been unpleasant in East Germany. He wanted money, permission to travel abroad, and the ability to publish as much as he wanted. And there wasn't that much paper around, and that's what he got. But I'll just tell you in the Stasi file on Grunman, they said he was a a typical academic. (laughs) 
desperate for admiration and with an inclination to intrigue. Is that, is that a typical academic? It's terrible, isn't it? Uh, how did they know that? No. <laughs> I just want to tell you how things live on by telling you something that happened to me last year. I had a, a wonderful fellowship uh, in Berlin last for the whole year last year at the Wissenschaftskolleg, which is an institute for advanced study. And while I was there, the, I heard about a conference that was being held in Thuringia by the Protestant Church about this man, Walter Grunmann, and also about Lothar Kreisig, who had been a judge from Saxony during the Nazi period, and he was anti-Nazi and was fired from his judgeship. And after the war, Lothar Kreisig founded an organization called Aktion Zunezeichen, which means Action Reconciliation. Young people are sent around the world to do volunteer work for a couple of years. It's a very, very fine program. But at the conference, I gave a short talk about my view of Grunman because the others were, you know, they were smoothing things over and not really presenting what he was all about. At the end of my talk, an elderly woman came over to me very angry, and she said to me, the Jews are just as racist as Hitler. I was shocked that she said this. And I asked her to repeat it, and she said it again. And I called over the director of this uh, uh, conference, a theologian, and I said, say it to him. And she said it to him. And he paused, and then he said to her, well, really, actually, the Jews aren't racist because Jews believe that as long as you're a good person, whatever your religion, you can go to heaven. Which I thought was a completely inappropriate response. But I, I, also, I, I was horrified by what she said. I would never compare somebody to Hitler, period, and to say, Jews are, Jews are, what, what kind of a thing is that? And she was clearly angry at what I had said. Why? It later turned out. I learned from people there. This woman had been a student of Walter Grunmann after the war. And you know what her job was until she retired? She was in charge of religious instruction in all the public schools of Thuringia and Saxony. After studying with this man, and she's talking like this, what was she telling the, the kids all those years, whatever, 35, 40 years, about Judaism? All right, so let me conclude with some comments about, about race and theology and then say a word about the post-war era. Um, so the question we have to ask is how these kinds of ideas that are false, that have no basis, scholarly basis in history, in fact, Jesus was Aryan and so on. How do they come to be constructed and accepted as natural, as authoritative? How do they live so long? What creates truth in people's minds? And what are the religious powers, institutional powers and imaginary powers that create religious truth for us? What's the realm we have, the room for questioning, for thinking critically, for not simply accepting what we're told, even when it comes in a religious package. We can ask, what is Nazi theology? Is it primarily about race, or is it about Christianity? To what extent does it depend on what came for centuries earlier? That is, the problem, the problem that Christians often have not been proud of the fact that Christianity originated within Judaism, but have felt ashamed rather than proud. Race allowed Christian theologians to reverse certain uncomfortable aspects of Christianity. So, for instance, traditionally, Jesus is presented in what we might term feminine, that is, gentle, forgiving, loving, turning the other cheek, wounded, bleeding, pierced, meek, Emphasizing Jews as the violent, wrathful, vengeful murderers of Jesus allows Nazi theologians to rally Christians as militant defenders of Jesus, as masculine, create a manly church, which they very much wanted. Now, are these theologians really protecting the church as they claimed after the war? Or were they working toward the Fuhrer, doing what they felt would win love from Hitler. It was an unrequited love, but they were hoping. 
Should we call them moderate Nazis because they didn't pick up a gun or go to Auschwitz, murder people en masse? Or should we call them radical Nazis because of the way they were thinking and the moral authority that comes from a pastor, a theologian? Were they simply following along with the Nazi regime or were they at the forefront pushing the Nazis to further radicalization? In much of the historiography today about the Holocaust, what's important more and more are the bystanders. That What we used to call bystanders, we have to put in quotation marks. What does that mean, bystander? The bystanders actually turn out to be engines of the Holocaust. I want to give you an example. I met a young man, historian in Germany, who was working on a meeting that had taken place in February of 1936. That's just a few months after the Nuremberg Laws. And he wrote an article about it. I read his article. It was very interesting. And it was based on a document, a transcript of this meeting of a small group of theologians. And the document itself was in Weimar. And I happened to go to that archive in Weimar for a variety of reasons. And I asked to look at that document. It was about 50 pages. And as I was reading through, and you know, I saw what this young man had written about and published in his article, I suddenly came across something amazing. One of the people at this conference sitting around a table said, in February of 36, I know that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, and I know that there's a commandment not to murder, but sometimes I have to look at the Jew and take my gun and kill him. And I do that only when I say the word Christ. Now, I was taken aback by this passage. I was also taken aback by the fact that he said it in such a matter-of-fact way and that the people sitting at the table didn't respond. Nobody jumped up and said, what are you talking about? Murder in the name of Christ. No, they just sat there calmly. It was precisely the quality of calm that was most significant. Had they been ranting and raving in a crazy way, it's one thing. But the calm indicates to us that this was normal. This was acceptable. This wasn't something new and shocking. And that is very revealing. What was disturbing to me was that this young man in his article never mentioned it. He didn't mention that paragraph. For him, it wasn't important. He missed it. And I wonder, why is that? What are we not allowing ourselves to see as historians? We can learn a great deal from this period about how racism works, how we understand or misunderstand racism. It's not just about biology or the body, bodily characteristics. Racism is about the attribution to the body of certain moral and spiritual characteristics. Theologians were attracted to racial theory because racists were always saying Jews are dangerous morally to the German nation. They corrupt. What does that mean, they corrupt? Well, you know, it's not that my nose is going to jump off my face and attack somebody. But they were afraid that there was some kind of moral corruption in the Jew that Aryans, Germans, were vulnerable to, that they would end up being corrupted. It's similar to the fears uh, of, uh, in, amongst colonial powers in Europe, fears of miscegenation. Yeah. Why were they afraid? Racism is about mixture. It's about fear. And race is a constantly changing historical construct. It doesn't have a fixed meaning. It's a principle through which society, society's members receive power and status, and they reinterpret it constantly. What's dangerous is that racism understands the moral and spiritual degeneracy of the Jew to be inherent in the body, incarnate in the body. Theologians read that kind of thinking and thought, ah, this is something theological, religious. It's a kind of incarnational theology, the way racism structures itself. They turned to race, racial theory because they felt it was modern and scientific. They said, look, the Bible, Genesis, God creates orders. Yeah, there's a man above woman, above animals. Yeah, racism comes along and says, yes, we have hierarchies in our society. So they felt that racism was actually proving the truth of the Bible and that the Bible was illustrating race.
This kind of racial thinking didn't entirely disappear, as I mentioned with this woman I met last year in Germany. Uh, But, of course, the language changed. After World War II, nobody used the word Aryan. They did continue, many of these theologians, to speak about Judaism as violent, as degenerate, uh, a morality that some of them said was actually a Jewish morality responsible for the Holocaust itself. I came across this in the work of Krista Mulak, a feminist theologian who argued that, in fact, the Nazis obey the command, commands of Hitler, just like the Jews obey the commandments of God. Nazism is the triumph of Judaism over Christianity. It's the Jews who are responsible, just like that woman said to me last year. Now, these are very difficult ideas, a difficult mentality to overcome, to change. Very difficult. It's especially difficult, I think, more difficult in Germany, in part because it's such a um, monocultural society. They don't come in contact with other people. They don't understand that racism exists in many different ways in a society. My students in Germany had trouble recognizing what was wrong with Krista Mulak's arguments. My students in the United States get it immediately. And that's because we understand how racism works in many contexts, not only against Jews, of course. Given this context, let me just say that after the war, after 1945, something extraordinary happened, and I'll conclude with this, and that is the Second Vatican Council and its statement, Nostra Aetate. 1965, there was a revolution, extraordinary revolution in Christianity, and it happened so quickly, so easily, but it was amazing. Nostra Aetate said that we can't continue to blame all Jews of all times for the murder of Christ. Cardinal Bea, one of the important figures in this, pointed out that even in the days of Jesus, not all Jews were living in Palestine. Some were in Rome. How could you hold them responsible? And certainly today, no. More than that, Nostra Aetate condemned anti-Semitism. It has no place. It has no place. But even more important, Nostra Aetate said that Judaism holds continued validity in the eyes of God. It was the first and most radical Christian affirmation of Judaism in its day. Nothing like that came before. And what does one draw from this? Again, very clear, and it was debated, there is to be no missionary effort vis-a-vis the Jews. If Judaism holds continued validity, it's not necessary to try to convert Jews to Christianity. Now, you know, that was not so easy. There was a lot of debate, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, and perhaps some of you have read the marvelous new book by John Connolly about Nostra Aetate. It's a great book, how this came about. But as you know, there were three different versions of Nostra Aetate. The first one was fine. The second one was a problem. It hoped for the eventual conversion of the Jews. And now I want to just conclude with something personal. My father was a Jewish theologian. He was born in Poland. He studied in Germany. He was there when Hitler came to power. He was, uh, with all the other Polish Jews, deported in October of 1938. And then, miraculously, as he said, he was plucked like a brand from the fire. He was brought out also at the last minute in the summer of 1939, He came to this country. He tried desperately to rescue his mother and three of his sisters who were still in Europe. They were trapped. They were murdered. Everybody in his family who didn't get out before the war was murdered. Nobody survived. And everybody who knew him, his whole world was destroyed. I have to say that I think back about it, how extraordinary that somebody, after all of this had happened, could still build a life. He got married. He had a child. He wrote very important and moving and inspiring books about Judaism, about religiosity. He never, he never spent his time talking to Christians about anti-Semitism. Didn't think it was necessary for him to do that. He always asked himself, what can I do? What's asked of me in this time? Looking forward. He also didn't talk much about Jesus 
unlike most other Jewish thinkers prior to his day. He said, nothing I can say as a Jew about Jesus will be acceptable to a Christian. We disagree. Well, why don't we talk about things that we have in common? How difficult it is sometimes to pray. How hard it is sometimes not to give up in moments of despair. I'll just tell you, I just want to conclude by reading you something that he wrote, but I want to just tell you before I do one other personal word. When I was growing up, my father had a lot of friends who were involved in the Second Vatican Council. He was asked to be the Jewish representative. He met with Cardinal Bea and with Pope Paul VI and with many theologians and with priests, sometimes came from Rome to our home. There were also many nuns he was close to. And they would come. My parents didn't entertain very often, and when they did, it was always Friday night. It was Shabbat dinner. And when I look back and think about those days and what I experienced as a child in that environment, I know that most of the people who came to our home in those days, and this is the 1960s, most of them had never been as Christians to a Shabbat dinner in a Jewish home. They hadn't experienced that. But they came into our home, and my father said the prayers in Hebrew. And I look back, and I remember their faces, and I think I know what they were thinking. They were thinking, it can't possibly be that this person would be denied a place in heaven. They were thinking that they had something to learn about God from a Jew. And I think for them it was a kind of theological earthquake. It was something remarkable to recognize and something very new. My father didn't have to say something to them about past Christian views about Judaism that weren't positive. Just by being in his presence, just by experiencing him in prayer, they understood for themselves. It was all very clear. And I think that's an important lesson for us, perhaps not to debate, but perhaps just to pray together. My father was invited to be a visiting professor at Union Theological Seminary in New York. And when he gave his inaugural address, he gave it the title, No Religion is an Island. Because he said, when one religion is attacked, the other suffers as well. The Nazis have an assault on Judaism. It hurts Christianity, too. He told Jews to be grateful, to be grateful to the church because Christianity, the Catholic Church, has preserved Jewish texts, Jewish documents. Be grateful for the art and the music and the civilization. And so at the end of his speech, my father said this, and I'll just read this last paragraph and then we'll stop. He said, what then is the purpose of interreligious cooperation? It is neither to flatter nor to refute one another, but to help one another, to share insight and learning, to cooperate in academic ventures at the highest scholarly level, and what is even more important, to search in the wilderness for wellsprings of devotion, for treasures of stillness, for the power of love and care for each other. What is urgently needed are ways of helping one another in the terrible predicament of the here and now and the courage to believe that the word of the Lord endures forever, to cooperate in trying to bring about a resurrection of sensitivity, a revival of conscience to keep alive the divine sparks in our souls, to nurture openness to the spirit of the Psalms, reverence for the words of the prophets, and faithfulness to the living God. Thank you.
Could you, after painting this somewhat of a broad brush picture of particularly German clergy, could you say a brief word about uh, more of the resistance group and particularly Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his uh, people? Sure. So that's the confessing church. You know, what's striking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who really was a hero and who was murdered tragically, and it's really a tragedy that we lost him because he would have been so important as a Christian thinker after the war. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer was involved with the Confessing Church, which is a movement in opposition to the people I've talked to about today. They were, the Confessing Church was not in opposition to Hitler. It was in opposition to people who wanted to change scripture, change the hymnal. That's what they opposed. That's important. And that was the church struggle. That's the term that historians use. Now, the confessing church believed in the sacrament of baptism. If you're baptized, you become a Christian. And if you deny that, if you say a Jew who's been baptized is still a Jew, well, then you're denying the validity of the sacrament. Yeah, and the response to that from the other side, from the people I've been talking about, was, well, you know <laughs> Galatians 3.28? Who knows Galatians 3.28? In Christ, there is neither Greek... Yeah male or female. Now let me ask you a question. If you go into a church where everybody's been baptized, do you see men and women? Yes. So they argue that baptism does not erase your gender. And so too it also does not erase your race. So a Jew remains a Jew even though the person's been baptized. That was the crucial turning point. So the confessing church said no, no, no. If a Jew has been baptized, he's a Christian, it will help will help Jews who have been baptized. But Jews who haven't been baptized, we're not interested. Bonhoeffer said, no, I, I want to help Jews. Remember that Bonhoeffer spent some time in the United States. He was at Union Theological Seminary. He went to church in Harlem and was very inspired there by, by the black church. And I think that made a big difference in his understanding of religion and race. So he was pretty much a lone voice in the confessing church in insisting that they help Jews. They didn't support him in that endeavor. A very important question. How widespread was this kind of thinking in churches? Uh, w- you know, I wish we had the sermons that were preached during those years and we could judge from the sermons. We don't. At the same time, we also have historians who never ask the question. There's a study, an older study by Dudlef Poikert of the city of Essen, where he tells you every detail about the city except what was going on in the churches. You could find out from the church bulletins what kind of a church it was, or um, there are ways to figure that out. Uh, but um, he, some historians don't ask about the churches altogether as a source of influence. On the other hand, these, um, these people who called themselves with a the confusing name German Christians, those who supported Hitler in the Protestant church, pretty much took over most of the churches uh, and controlled the budget and controlled who was um, teaching and who was in which parish, etc., uh, not all, but, but most of them, uh, most of the regional churches were under their control. So I would say it's a very widespread as thinking, as a theology, uh, but we can't give you a quantified data about it because we don't have the sermons and no one's really made that effort. The one person who's investigated is Manfred Geilis, who's looked at Berlin at the Protestant church, and he was surprised uh, at the significant percentage in the beginning of the Nazi regime of support on the part of the churches uh, for Hitler and this kind of theology. Of course, things also have to be measured throughout the course of the of the Reich, the 12 years, you see. Yeah. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week with another episode of The Mystic and the Skeptic. Show descriptions and content are available online on our Facebook page. We would like to thank Radio Free Nashville for their technical guidance and assistance. The songs you hear on our introduction and finale are from the band The Ancient Gnostics. The first one is called Day by Day, produced by Hafki. The second one is called All Mine, and it's produced by Brotherhood.